Howdy. Hello. It's the Fight Site Boys. It's the gang. It's the toughest dudes in podcasting. You know, we have the title now. No one else has ever podcasted about toughness as far as I know. So we have that distinction as the toughest dudes in podcasting. Uh, I'm joined by, well, I'm Ed Gallo, if you didn't know. Uh, I, I run the site and I do a lot of content for the site. And you probably heard me before. And uh, I have other people here. So if you're sick of me, there's, there's plenty, plenty more to go around. Plenty more people for you to get sick of. Uh, but, you know, there will be novelty at first. So that's nice. Uh, so I'm joined by some other tough dudes. Uh, I got Zach Makovsky here. If you don't know, uh, he won a world title in, in that MMA sport. And he also fought in the UFC and was robbed of a title shot uh, against John Dodson. But, you know, he, he's done very well for himself. He's still fighting. Uh, he's in Brave. He got robbed again in Brave. Ridiculous. Uh, Zach, how are you coping with your robbery? I'm all right. I'm taking... <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm at least happy that I know I'm tough because I'm podcasting about toughness. I mean, what other sign could there possibly be? Nothing tougher than nothing tougher than talking about it. Of course, uh, you got to talk about being tough, um, or you're obviously not tough. Mm-hmm. If you don't set the expectations and there's nothing to back up and there's no pressure on you, and that's not tough, as we discussed last week, um, yeah. it's important. But yeah, and we also have a. Uh, we don't, I don't know what to call him at this point. Iggy, Tumen, whatever you want to be. Uh, <laughs> if there's a third name you want to throw in the mix. Uh, but that's our host of Tengri Dome and uh, the news recap, the combat sports new, new re- news recap every week and a bunch of really cool articles and other podcasts. And he's doing lots of stuff. And he's so handsome and smart and strong. And uh, yeah, I love him. He's great. And how are you doing today? This end this fine morning for you. I mean... Compared to the previous uh, recording session, I've actually got a full night of sleep, <laughs> and, and I didn't drink myself into stupor the other day. So, That's key. Uh, yeah, I suppose I am doing all right. That's good. That's good. Very tough of you to be doing well. To be taking care of yourself is not an easy thing to do. Self care—that's a sign of toughness as well. I mean the primary sign of toughness is to constantly talk about how tough you are so we're doing it <laughs> yeah we're doing it right now so i'm naturally... gonna get worse folks and our our fourth panelist you know just fourth <clears throat> in my order because the order of the box is not order of importance that's the most interesting man in the world uh hacks who is uh still hiding his face from us because he doesn't want us to feel bad about how handsome he is i think that's what the deal is uh how you doing and uh, are, are your children alive Oh, no. Not for lack of trying, I swear to God. Pe- people who aren't parents don't understand how self-destructive children are. They can, they can try and remove themselves from the gene pool on anything. Children are tough. See? See? Yeah, I made it about them, not me. Yeah, get out, play dead. Tough to deal with, not tough in character. Both. We'll call them A, we'll call them B. I respect that you mute yourself, but also the silence makes me fear that you left us. There he goes again. Well, anyway, let's start this thing. Uh, this is part two of our toughness podcast. If you couldn't tell by us dropping the word every other minute. It was unintentional last time how often we said the word toughness or tough. Uh, this time, I think it's a little more intentional because like you just you can't you can't avoid it. You just got to lean into it. Uh, but we talked about a lot of interesting stuff last time maybe too many interesting topics. We spoiled you. 
Uh, and we're just going to, like I said, lean into it, do even more this time, maybe expand on some things we started to talk about last time and said, oh, we'll get more in depth with that later. Um, but we're going to do it. So, uh, Tuman, what are we what are we doing today? Tell, tell me, tell me what to talk about. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so uh, in the previous episodes, we have um, kind of uh, managed to chew our way through on a, a very extensive topic and uh, come uh, come up with our own definitions for toughness. Uh, the primary uh, discussion topic was the definition of toughness and can toughness be taught? And so we've discussed this concept, uh, the, the concept of toughness in combat sports and attempted to come up with a comprehensive definition for it. And defining toughness is hard, primarily because it's an extremely broad concept and it's frequently used in situations when physical durability would be a better descriptor. And so we've done our best to chip away at the misconceptions regarding toughness and explore whether it can be taught. So I guess, I mean, uh, in order to bring uh, new listeners up to speed, I guess I can, uh, I think we can summarize what we've done. Like we've explored the difference between bad toughness and good toughness. Wherein something encouraging a fighter to exhibit their toughness may lead to serious long-term consequences for their career and future life. We've explored the underdog syndrome permeating combat sports culture, where fighters who routinely take a beating are hailed for being tough, as well as the misconception that harsher conditions and traumatizing upbringing is what causes people to become tougher. We've explored the interplay between physical durability and mental fortitude, and that is key. Physical durability is an attribute one possesses as well as mental fortitude, but it is the interplay between them that truly allows certain fighters to prevent themselves from becoming discouraged in the process of fighting, whether due to their opponent giving them a much tougher fight than anticipated, the various extraneous circumstances that may prevent them from fighting the way they would like, such as injuries, and uh, the many mundane real-life problems that might distract them from the fight itself, sick relatives, relationship troubles, financial debt, etc., etc., etc. Fighters are, after all, just as human as the average person, even though a bit more disciplined, uh, which is also a key point. And we've talked to, uh, about how banking on physical durability can be considered a way out of, uh, from a bad situation, to avoid a blow to the ego for some fighters, the notion of going out on your shield as opposed to having the fight stopped by a corner, even when it is apparent that the fight is unwinnable and how admitting you've lost may put a much more severe strain on a fighter's mental fortitude than simply getting beat up. And we've explored toughness as an individual trait versus toughness as a side effect of the teaching system. And that is uh, where today's topic comes in. Certain aspects such as discipline and composure under fire or composure while fatigued come with experience and training and it can be taught. They are, after all, a matter of habit, like any skill, uh, a matter of habit and comfort. Consistent training teaches discipline. Subsequently, it allows you to accustom yourself to performing more and more difficult tasks over time. Composure under fire comes with fighting experience and can be with certain caveats cultivated in gym conditions through things like specific drills or sparring. And trust in your own skill set is a big subset of that composure where a fighter is confident enough that they have all the tools to dictate the way the fight would go and subsequently win. Losing fights or not having success with your skill set in a live situation versus your gym performance is a frequent mental stressor fighters have to face. And uh, partway through the discussion, I came up with my own definition for toughness of, in combat sports, which I think we can all agree on uh, that uh, it was pretty comprehensive. It was great. Uh, you did yeah, amazing. toughness. <laughs> uh, everyone's definition was uh, 
pretty on point. But uh, my own definition was that toughness in combat sports is the result of the interplay between the physical attributes of durability, composure under stress, and personal discipline, wherein a fighter is able to remain, to remain cool under fire, trust in the process they've been taught by their coaches, and endure physical and mental stresses in order to push through those obstacles and deploy their own, employ their own skill set and leverage their physical attributes effectively in order to win the fight. So all in all, it was a pretty, pretty, pretty hefty topic we've managed to show our way through. And once again, this brings us to another important topic that I believe warrants its own, uh, own in-depth discussion, that is systems of coaching and training in combat sports, namely the way different gyms and cities and countries and subsequently entire geographical regions approach training their fighters. Coaching may be an individual process where fighters are taught on a case-by-case basis, uh, depending on their personalities and traits and physical uh, attributes, et cetera, et cetera. But with like fighting itself, the process of fighting itself, it possesses myriads of different, different styles and approaches. Uh, and, but nonetheless, many of the same fundamental principles apply to each one. The implementation varies, but the principles behind the methodology largely remain the same. And so we've hit upon the idea that composure and discipline and subsequently toughness can be taught. So let's follow up on that. And our first segment for this uh, for today's discussion panel would be coaching and how the notions of toughness and other desirable fighter attributes have affected it. Uh, differences uh, in sports, culture and culture in general, how different countries approach training, skill training and strength and conditioning in different countries. For example, the US doesn't approach these things the same way Russia does. Japan has a long and storied history of martial arts and martial arts tradition that is rooted very deeply in the value system of the nation of Japan, which subsequently had a massive influence on how the training process is approached by camps. South America doesn't approach these things the same, the same way Europe does, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we, can, uh, we can provide examples of athletes uh, produced by the respective systems, but I think we should start with uh, what uh, we know best uh, and what we've personally experienced, that is the Soviet system versus the US system. Uh, so, uh, who, <laughs> who wants to start? I, I'm, I'm not going to follow that, so. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, last time we talked a lot about wrestling and wrestling culture in the United States, and something I have a little bit of insight into and Zach has a lot of insight into, but you hear, you hear tons of stories. Um, I, one of the best, and well, first of all, uh, it's so pervasive in, uh, in the college wrestling scene because, you know, coaching is kind of like a, a domino effect sometimes, uh, especially when someone is super successful at it. So everyone knows who Dan Gable is, Dan Gable. I uh, was a three-time NCAA champion, uh, you know, Olympic champion, uh, coach at the University of Iowa for, for you know, over a decade, very long time. Uh, won a ton of team titles, raised a bunch of national champions. So he himself was a great competitor, and he, he raised a lot of other guys to great heights as well. And his methodology was always working as hard as humanly possible. Uh, I read both of his uh, autobiographies. They're, they're really, really good. Um, it's just tons of stories and, and a lot of insight into the way he thinks and, and what he did. And one of his things was he always wanted to work out so hard that he passed out. That was a goal of his, uh, to work out so hard that he passed out. And he never did it. And he always felt bad that he never managed to make himself pass out by working out. But that is how he approached coaching as well, that he, he knew all the correct technique and, and everything to do. We said, we're going to make the difference by 
just we will have worked so much harder than everyone else so that one you know the muscle memory is going to be there too and you know, the cardio is going to be there the you know the conditioning is going to be there and you know we're going to have the confidence to know that even if we're tired we're always tired like we know how to be tired um and that mindset became so much more pervasive in wrestling because of him and everyone that came after him all these wrestlers that he brought up went on to become head coaches uh, in division one wrestling and other styles of wrestling and they all you know, branched out and they all started to teach their spin on the Gable method, the Gable style. But uh, even today, the University of Iowa, the head coach is Tom Brands, his brother, Terry Brands, one of the top coaches there as well. They are like the Gable guys. They do exactly what he did. And, you know, in modern times, it's held up decently. They're a very, very good team, uh, but also different types of methods that have come over more so from Europe, from the European systems and Russian systems have influenced the college scene today too. It's starting to reveal some of the limitations. I think college wrestlers are getting smarter these days, uh, but for a long time, that was the way it was. And everyone looks in, in the combat sports world, anyone knows anything uh, in the United States, they look towards wrestlers as a model for training and a model for conditioning and model for a lot of things because they come into the gym and wrestlers beat the shit out of them. And they're like, Oh, these guys know what's up, um, which is there's a lot that goes into that. And it's not just they have the best training methods. It's also because this is someone who's been training a martial art since they were five years old. And I'm a football player that has been training for six months. Uh, why are they so much better than me? Uh, but uh, that's definitely the main the main themes of, of that uh, that approach. And Zach, you've, you've probably had a, a different experience uh, with, with your own training, right? You know, probably not strictly Iowa style. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, um, there's, there's no question about, I agree every, everything, everything you said is right. Like Dan Gable had like such a ridiculous impact on us wrestling, you know, and I understand the appeal because, you know, it was like an emphasis on outworking people and toughness and it kind of like, so like, even if you weren't the most skilled or the most athletic, it's kind of like that it gave like the every man a chance to be the best because his system was just not about, it wasn't, it didn't prioritize those things. It was about outworking everyone and putting that into action and doing it consistently. And everyone on their team did it. And it was really unbelievable. And I think that the fact that it was like, I don't have to be super genetically gifted. I don't have to be the most skilled wrestler. Like, if I work hard enough, there's a path for me to be the, be the best in the best in the country. And that is super appealing. I, I, I was, I was one of those guys like Gable is such a legend in, in my eyes. It's like, uh, I, I can't, I can't even put into words that feeling that, that feeling that he gives to people that you don't even have to be the best. If, if you're smart, if you're smart about how you do it, if you train hard enough, if you work hard enough, um, you can become champion. And one of my assistant wrestling coaches in college, Jill Melcury, wrestled for two years at Oklahoma and then wrestled for two years at Iowa under Gable. Now he is like not a typical Iowa wrestler. He is much more uh, slick and about cat, like upper body throws and pinning people and stuff like that. But he has some unbelievable stories about Gable and the, the stuff, not only he made the guys go through or put, uh, Melcury himself through, but the things that they would see him do as a 40 year old conditioning wise, that would just like blow everyone else out of the water who was division one athletes and champions at that point. So it's like, 
it's hard to overstate this overstate that so i i actually was influenced by that system and even in high school i felt like that was the prevailing prevailing ideology it was like it's not like let's analyze why our technique failed or where you could how you could set up this technique better it was like you obviously just didn't work hard enough and do enough work so it's just harder and more that was like the prevailing thing like i didn't I didn't really like start thinking deeply about technique until I was at the earliest, a little bit later in, in high school and mostly in college. I was just like, it was always about going harder and, and working more. So, I mean, that was such a prevailing uh, concept in my own training. Now, since I've been involved in MMA, my coaches have been, uh, I'll say pretty different than that mentality. It was much more about, being intelligent as you fight, um, creating the openings that you want for your game and, and, uh, much more like a much more thoughtful approach rather than just outworking people. So I've had, I guess I've had a, a balance. Um, and certainly for us is on the, uh, the outthinking, outsmarting, outskilling people's side, side of this. So, um, I don't know if I answered that question. Mm -hmm. How do you think, uh, you know, toughness factors into the approach that you're, that you take now that you took under, under TriStar and for us? Um, well, like I said, in the last one is like, I want to be as tough as the fight requires. If it's the hardest fight of my life, I want to be able to deal, deal with that. If that means I have to end up being in a brawl, to win the fight, that's fine. It's not my choice. I'll, I don't, I don't, I'll fall back on that if I have to. And usually I, I feel like I haven't really felt like I needed to brawl. I feel like I've always had like grappling options or uh, holding people against the cage and controlling pace that way, or just back foot counter options. So I feel like I haven't been in a spot where I feel like the only way I'm out of this is to brawl. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah. We talked a little bit last time when we were talking about GSP, George St. Pierre, uh, that, you know, not succumbing to that, you know, when you, when you feel like there might be a more, um, almost a more simplistic option for getting out of a tough spot in a fight, or, you know, you want to please the fans or you're feeling pressure from their promoter or just on yourself for your career. Uh, it, it's hard to be yourself sometimes when you really feel like you want to do things one way. That's what we talked about the toughness to retain your individuality and, and do things your way and stick to it uh, just to, to make that decision. So I feel like that that's probably a play as well. Yeah. One thing I realized after rewatching that last podcast is that like, um, so like, like we were talking about, I think the favor example primarily, but I think there was, there were other examples, uh, Thompson, Neil and stuff where it was like, uh, like what skills do you have available and what ideas do you have available in the moment? And neither are like, you're tough if you do one and not tough if you do other. It's like how your toughness gets displayed based on your ideas. It could be displayed with you, uh, you adapting and trying something, taking more risks because you have more ideas and more, more tactics under your belt, or it could uh, present itself as you just taking a beating and trying to wing the same overhand over and over again, praying for a Hail Mary, you know? So it's like uh, your skills and your, your, how thoughtful you are in there can dictate how the toughness presents itself. But I don't think it either way means like you're not tough. Cause I think favor in that example was equally tough in both circumstances. One, he just 
was like, my leg is cooked. I can't do anything. And the other, he's like, my hands are cooked. I'm cool with throwing combinations, yeah. four combinations of four elbows and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. um, Hacks, you've had experience training in, in uh, a few different environments, I think. So you've probably been exposed to uh, different different cultures of training. So what have your experiences been like and, uh, and how do you think toughness factors into it? I think uh, I would probably start with as as like combat sports have become a bit older, and, and I, I will use the term mature, not necessarily in a contemptuous way, like in a in a broad perspective way. People are living longer, healthier, happier lives, right? Like that's a thing, and that and, and what a lot of people forget is because of that, we see if you like the and I'll put this in air quotes consequences of bad decisions or damaging decisions made when those people were young and healthy because you know if you're in your 20s and you have a horrendous injury like a major back problem it's a lot easier to come from back from that than when you're 50 so one thing that's really come out to me from my experience training in different environments is how much that way of thinking that what are uh I'm not going to say athletes because at 50, you're probably not a combat sports athlete, but what are our former athletes, our alumni? What are the quality of life is it like at 50, at 60, at 70? Because, you know, a lot of prize fighters fought until they were dead back in, you know, the, the early uh, 21st century. A lot of prize fighters in the 1950s fought until they were getting, you know, they couldn't get any more money. Now, a lot more prize fighters have an opportunity to retire younger. So we get to see the consequences of putting the brakes in your career and fight more. So I would say um, two things. Firstly, I would say, I, I think in my experiences with the Soviet and I suppose now the Russian system, they do think a great deal about toughness in the same way that Americans do in terms of training it and building on it. But I think the importance of technique plays a larger role. And I don't think it's a conscious choice from the Soviet or post-Soviet systems so much as it is a natural consequence of incentives. And to try and get across what I mean by that, I'll I'll go back to an example I mentioned um, in the previous podcast. Let's say theoretically you... Um, use some amazing super Soviet science and you clone Henry Cejudo at like two years old and you give him, you give a Soviet Henry Cejudo to the Soviet system and you keep the Henry Cejudo in the American system. And Iggy can correct me here, but my guess is the Soviet Cejudo, uh, let's assume he grows up the exact same way. He struggles a bit with commitment. He's not particularly disciplined. He gets fat in between wrestling competitions. In a Soviet system, let's say you start to see these personality uh, quirks, shall we say, um, show themselves at about age 10. My feeling is, and this is all other factors being equal, a Soviet system would sit that boy down and beat that fucking attitude out of him from between 10 to 15. I don't mean literally punch him until he changes his mind, but through training, through discipline, through reinforcement. Now, Young men are not exactly the easiest people to teach. And it wouldn't surprise me if from the age of about 10 to maybe even into his early 20s, Cejudo actually did worse under a Soviet system because of his natural personality, his natural tendency towards, you know, coasting on his talent a little bit. But I think the same Cejudo would probably perform a lot better past his early 20s because he would gain growth and maturity and experience. He would see that the Soviet 
focus more on discipline and technique and reputable process was serving him better as he aged. So he might not win as many medals or do as well as a young man, but as an older, more experienced wrestler, I think he would achieve more. And I think most people would say that's a fair analysis of Cejudo. And obviously we know what happened with Cejudo under the American model. He did a lot of great things, but he kind of ballooned a little in between competitions. There were periods in his career where you could see he wasn't as committed as he could have been. So why, why would the two systems do that? And it goes back to what I mentioned last week. In the American system, you've got high school wrestling, you've got NCAA wrestling, then you've got uh, Team America wrestling. There's a kind of three (laughs) different systems, right? And they all have a different Cejudo and they all want to get something different out of him. The high school wants him to win as much as he can for the high school. NCAA wants him to win as much as he can for the NCAA. The um, Team America wants him to win as much as he can for Team America. So there's kind of an incentive at every stage dealing with this absolutely brilliant, talented, monstrous athlete to try and just optimize him to get the most for the, let's say, five years you have with him. And that's probably going to include, because of his personality and his preferences and his habits, focusing on the short-term goals. But for a Soviet system, there's probably a good chance, if not the same coach, a bunch of coaches with the same goal are working with Cejudo his entire fucking life. They don't care if he doesn't accomplish much as a junior athlete. If by the end of his whole career, they can go, here is Henry Cejudovich. He has won 11 gold medals in his life as wrestling. He smashed those filthy Americans. Who the fuck cares what he lost as a child? Who cares if he had a couple of losses because he got fat and couldn't compete in the weight class he was supposed to? He's been healthy his whole life. He's been successful his whole life. His aggregate number of total gold medals has been larger and he can teach the next generation. And the American system is not automatically wrong. Everyone's looking out for their best interest. The Soviet system is not automatically wrong. Everyone's looking out for their best interest. But it kind of illustrates, in my opinion, the differences between a a very fractured, balkanized system that has its own individual goals, which are usually about, shall we say, maximizing profits for a short amount of time or minimizing losses, compared to a system that can take a longer-term focus and that's reflected in the quality of training. And I think that kind of example or model is exactly what I've experienced training in um, the the Soviet system and the Russian system, and also training in a system like Australia, which is pretty Americanized in the sense that there's that lack of unity and truly developing elite talent across their whole lifetime. Mm -hmm. Real quick, that youth wrestling example, that that's a really, really good point. Um, If you look at youth wrestling in the United States, if, if you follow wrestling people on any form of social media, like wrestling parents, every single day there's a post about, it's just it's just youth competition. It's just youth competition. This is not the world championships. You need to calm down. Uh, like it's not that big of a deal, but uh, youth wrestlers and the United States, they compete so much. And I think there's just an emphasis on competing uh, in general uh, in the United States. Whereas if you look at like viral Instagram videos from Russia of youth wrestlers, they love like, you know, because people like to mythologize Russia, right? Like these, you know, look at these magical children and how good they are when they're eight years old or whatever. Um, it's just videos of them drilling. It's just videos of them drilling in practice and being looking like really, really good wrestlers in practice and like hitting arm spins over and over and over again uh, and just doing really advanced drills with each other. Those are the videos that go that, that are big with, with youth wrestling in Russia. Youth wrestling in America is like a Steve O'Poolin from New York 
who is like going to 80 competitions here and is headlocking everyone and crushing everyone. He has a mohawk. Uh, like that's, that's such a, it's such a stark contrast. You really made me think of that, but yeah, that, I think that's also a good, uh, a good signifier of the differences in, in systems. Yeah. I love Hax's thought experiments. They're crazy. Cejudo <laughs> didn't wrestle in college though. Right. Yeah. He went, he went straight from high school into Olympic style. Yeah, uh, he was technically at like Grandview or something in Utah. I don't think he was ever there or competed for them though. Okay, but it's it's interesting. I, I I really feel like I have no good concept of whether Cejudo would have been better in a Russian kind of system than the U.S. Like I have no no grasp of of what it would look like either way. Like what would be different one way or the other as I, something I can't wrap my head around, but if it means we didn't get triple C in MMA, then I'm alone <laughs> taking his spot. <laughs> I think one big difference there is Henry Cejudo is one of like two people ever where you can say like, usually with the, with Americans now not doing as well in freestyle or could they have done better in freestyle? It's because they trained a different sport their entire life up until that point. It's like, okay, now do freestyle. Uh, whereas Henry Cejudo, you know, he wrestled in high school, but he probably wasn't training folk style specifically that much. He's probably just trained to take people down and, and focus on freestyle. Same with Aaron Pico. Um, those are guys that were good at freestyle sooner because that's what they were training the whole time. Uh, whereas in other countries, they might have their traditional folk styles in their countries, but it's not as organized and, and, and emphasized as it is in the U.S. That's another big difference. And like, it's so goofy, but because <laughs> like the goal should be you know the future world and olympics but like you said hacks everyone's got their own agendas for what they want out of these athletes and like the ncaa is an institution and it's a business and there's you know there's a whole freaking knots upon knots and knots of why ncaa wrestling exists the way it is and changing it to freestyle would be a huge upending of, of the entire infrastructure of the sport in the united states so like just it go it keeps going deeper and deeper into what the what the problems are and why things are the way they are. But you're you're definitely right that the you know it's it's segmented. It's so different. Whereas uh, they, they have a really different mentality about what the end goal is. Um, at least in, in Russia and, and other countries. Too many. I haven't I, talked in a while. I'm sorry. I think uh, an important point that has to be point that has to be emphasized is that Hex talks about incentives and uh, not necessarily cultures. Uh, because uh, it, it's um, not necessarily uh, one is caused by the other. It's the interplay between those things. But in common discourse, many people uh, focus on culture really, really hard. And uh, what do they mean by culture in this case? I've always wondered what, what's... And in many cases, it it's, uh, comes down to stereotyping, really, and not talking about the culture per se. So, like, people talk about how oh, Russia is just dif- they ha- just have a different mentality, America just has a different mentality, and uh, really, like, why? I I mean, is it because uh, the brains are wired differently? No, they're not. Is it because? of the historical context behind the many things that uh, the, the two different countries experienced over the years? Maybe, but it's also not really the primary cause, I don't think. But I, uh, I believe Hex uh, may wish to elaborate on that further. 
Oh yeah, I was just going to like plus one that and point out that like I think a lot of debates in MMA or in combat sports because it's not done by historians, it's not done by people that study institutions, it's done by idiotic <laughs> Twitter accounts that you know, if they actually attempted to retweet a paper, <laughs> their brain would probably explode. But like people get so fixated on terms like culture and they don't define what they mean. And then so like we end up with this pointless chicken and egg argument where like five John Jones accounts are arguing over like culture and all of them mean something different. And that's not to say that culture isn't a worthwhile topic to explore. It absolutely is. Culture is a huge part of um, of discussing any combat sports, you know, but I think it's important to remember as, as Tuman's kind of, you know, implied, let's get a bit more specific than just culture. So if we're going to, so as an example, if we're going to talk about the history of Japanese wrestling, let's not just say culture. Let's not just say the culture of Japanese wrestling. Let's connect it to some specific it's, ideas. It's the Bushido way of the Japanese yeah, samurai that influenced like, the freestyle wrestling. Oh. Like, let's actually talk, <laughs> for example, about how like, is there a, you know, there's an idea, as I understand, that Japanese wrestling is seen as, as exceptionally combative and has a beautiful element of showmanship. So let's actually connect that to specific ideas in Japanese culture and talk about it. Let's not just throw the fucking word culture out there. Let's, or like, let's do what we did with toughness. What does that mean? What does it connect to? Where does it lead us? Let's make some theories and test them rather than be like MMA Twitter bots and just throw out meaningless bullshit that can't actually be examined. It's not like a call out of anyone here. That's more like a, I hate it. I feel called out because <laughs> I don't know anything about Japanese culture, so I can't make those connections. Uh, but you can make it about American wrestling. I can or make about the observations about what I see and you guys can connect it to Japanese culture. <laughs> I mean, uh, the way I generally see culture is uh, it's like a, a, a complex, uh, a complex of ideas and a value system that's formed uh, over the years, over many, many years, uh, according to the historical events that took place and according to the uh, linguistical uh, language processes that, uh, that uh, dictated the way the culture developed over the years. And uh, uh, that's basically the... It's well. That's the thing. It's a complex. It, it's a complex. It's a complex thing. It's an entire complex of uh, different, different, various different factors that uh, come together in a whole system. It's not like it can't be brought down to a single stereotype about uh, like oh, uh, the Japanese are disciplined, the Americans are free willed, and uh, the Russians are I don't know grim and drink a lot. <laughs> so. Um, uh the thing about uh, uh the sports and uh, say well let's take japan for example well let's 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 take the asian the east asian region as an example east asian region the east asian region has been historically influenced by china to a very significant extent and uh the the, the primary driver behind uh, well not to go into this whole confucius confucianism thing because th that's what uh many uh uh, random Twitter people like to talk about, oh, why Asia has had a better response to COVID, for example. Oh, Confucianism, collectivism. Ah. But that's that's no, not really it. But still, it's a historical fact that China had a, a tremendous influence on how 
the region develops and the interplay between the different countries that uh, the different peoples that populate that region. And so uh, one thing about that that can be singled out is, for example, filial piety, uh, deference towards eldest, uh, respect towards your elders. And so if you look at uh, something like traditional martial arts, for example, let's say, uh, let's move further east and uh, go back to Japan, to the Japan example, let's say karate, a huge emphasis on the, the, the sensei, the teacher. He, he is the one you should always uh, defer to in any situation. And that's kind of sort of can be traced to how, uh, let's say, uh, a boxing camp would, uh, how the interplay between a boxing gym and the head of the boxing gym, uh, how, how, that, how that dynamic works. And uh, yeah, uh, and then you have the system of traditional values in, in Japan where, so for example, it can be, it can be said that uh, if you look at the history of boxing in Japan, historic, uh, hi that historically Japanese boxers were valued for their uh, ability to take punishment, for their refusal to give in, to give up at all costs. And that can be also, that can be also found in, for example, Korean boxing as well. So what that tells us, it, uh, it, does, not, uh, it does not mean that there is a, like, a, mm, well, correlation does not imply causation. That's the main thing here. But there is a certain correlation between the historical context and the traditional value system of these different uh, countries and how they developed and the way the sports developed in those countries as well. And so you can say the same about, uh, let's say, well, you can say the same about America or Russia as well. And so that is... Uh, that is the well. I guess that's that is the primary point I'm trying to make. It's a it's a nuanced topic, and that's that's my favorite new word. Always nuance. Mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, to build upon that, we can go towards examining, for example, training camps and training culture and MMA, uh, like how the above has affected the way fighters approach training for MMA today, and can it be improved? And what lessons can be garnered from other more well-established sports with longer history? So Can I offer uh, one uh, one counter example to the types of cultures we've discussed so far before we jump into a new topic? Yeah, sure, definitely. Something that just sprung into my mind that I know a little bit about um, is Cuba. So the Cuban wrestling system is, is another one that gets mythologized a lot because uh, the thing that you'll hear a lot of the times is like we, people have seen pictures of their facilities and they are a Spartan. Now, there's not there's not a lot there. Um, they, they get a lot done with a little. And if you've heard like Yoel Romero on, on the Joe Rogan podcast, for example, he gave a really good account of what it's like to come through the Cuban system. And basically, um, you know, being, being the starting wrestler on the Cuban team uh, to be a national team member uh, is a full-time job. And in their system, you know, economically, I don't really know how things work in, in the Cuban government, you know, in, you know, in the past and the present, but uh, you know, there's a direct correlation between your, your quality of life and how well you're doing as a wrestler, if you're the guy. Um, so, you know, Romero talked about things like, you know, access to the internet and like his lodging and a whole bunch of other stuff were dependent on if he was winning. Um, not just like 
here you get money, but here you get access to things, here you get resources. So um, he said that, you know, when you're, when you're doing really well, it's great. And when you're not doing well at all, you get nothing and you might not even eat. So it's like the relationship, it's so weird. You want to talk about incentives uh, and in a more literal sense, uh, your incentive to win is, is to survive um, because, you know, they put you through sports really early. It's, it's very um, systematized. Uh, once you go through school, they give you a choice of which sports you want to do. And you basically do that forever. Um, but that's what you do. Um, and <laughs> if you're not good at it and you don't have any other outlet, uh, you're screwed. So there, he, he said it was like life and death in, in the training room sometimes, especially with the guys that you're going to be competing against to make the team for wrestle-offs. Um, it, but it's interesting because Cubans don't have that kind of reputation on the international stage. Uh, they actually have a, a bad reputation as people that don't really want to win that much um, because they, more than any other country, have been known to throw matches for money, um, which makes sense. The entire point to win was for the money. Um, this is their, their way of making a living. So it's like American wrestling, it's about like the glory, you know, the, uh, the virtue of winning, of being a winner of hard work and the, and the payoff and everything like that. With Russia, I have no idea what the incentive is. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, that's one important thing about mm -hmm. uh, culture. Once again, is that uh, many people talk about how geography dictates culture, and it's uh, partially right. And many people talk about how uh, the international relations dictated culture. That that is also partially correct. But uh, one one important thing that many people miss in this case is once once again incentives what do they have and what do they have to work with and what do they want to accomplish in order to function as a society and same applies to everything else same applies to the sports that the the culture developed and the sports the, the set culture participates in that yeah. was my that was my whole thing go ahead yeah. <laughs> <laughs> basically trying to neatly summarize it all yeah and uh, uh Sorry, yeah, I would sure. have just added like one thing that's really interesting to me is by mythologizing culture, we have this tendency to remove or like delete or ignore parts of that culture that don't fit like how we see that culture. One like one that's always fascinated me and I am not going to pretend I am a Japanese wrestling expert. Get somebody else on that for the program. But something that's always fascinated me is Western interpretations of Japanese wrestling, particularly that beautiful theatrical flair that has come into Japanese, let's say, competitive wrestling as opposed to professional wrestling. I, I One of the founders, or as I understand, the founder of that Japanese professional wrestling, that catch wrestling flair, that performance was um, Ricky Dozan. He was Korean Japanese. He... Um, he his native country was Korea. He moved to Japan, competed as sumo. I think he got to the third highest rank. It's kind of fascinating to me how a, a large, if you like, component of the spirit of early Japanese professional wrestling, which we all know has had a large impact on Japanese wrestling as a culture overall, um, was Korean. And it doesn't get talked about because it doesn't fit the narrative of Japan which it, it segues into a much broader political point about Korean Japanese people. But I just thought I would show that's a really good example. We get so zoned in on a homogenous mythologized culture. We miss the human stories and motivations and often much more diverse than we think cultural influences 
that drive combat sports and drive, again, putting it in quotes, Japanese wrestling. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. to, to uh, yeah, sure. Go ahead. I actually hit on a, a word that I was, I've been thinking of since we started this, uh, talking about culture influences and like, uh, whether it was the Cuban example or, or the Russian system or whatever, this, this is, I, I thought about this before I was thinking about this on the, on the drive over here. Like what, because, because uh, Iggy said in the last podcast, he was talking about Khabib and how uh, in Russia, he was relatively privileged, especially in the sports world, especially because of his family and stuff. And did that mean he wasn't tough? Of course not. Of course not. And so like, uh, like coming from a tough place or, or uh, where the incentives are for like for Cubans to like to succeed, to, uh, to, to gain more resources and money and what have you. And I think it does come down to motivation. It's like, and that's why, that's why it can like the person from the nicest area can be equally as motivated as someone else. Now the culture can certainly play a factor in the motivation, whether it's because uh, like, it's a it's a more poor area, and they want they uh, the incentive is to do that, and that also explains why the Cubans would potentially not do well for for the incentive of money, or or like um, you know why uh, like boxers who come out of like poor areas and like why why they they're always like they're always portrayed as like from a tough background that they they had to rise out of. And I think it relies, it, it comes back to motivation and because all the best people obviously don't come out of those situations and you can be just as motivated to be great for a, any a number of reasons. Culture can be one of them. Uh, bad circumstances can be one of them. Just like your desire to be successful in something can be one of them. So I think, uh, Although there are certainly broad trends that can dictate how large groups of people see these things, because certainly people are heavily influenced by their culture and their environment and the people around them. That's, that's how that's how human beings work. It's not the only way. And I think as far as of right now, where hacks probably this proves me <laughs> <laughs> that, that, it, that it comes down to motivation. Yeah, the main danger here is uh, like um, developing a sort of a myopic view of the world. And uh, Hacks touched upon this briefly and how mythologizing a culture or stereotyping a culture may lead you, uh, may lead you to disregarding examples of that uh, do not fit the overall picture that you have in your head about uh, a certain topic. Um, and... Uh, uh, where where I was going with this? Ah, the thing is that uh, it's not really when you have this idea in your head that repre- does not exactly represent reality, and, it, and you try to, so to speak, push a, a square peg through a square hole in order to make it fit. It's uh, it becomes it doesn't. It's not really reasoning. It's kind of like trying to come up with rationales post factum as opposed to actually coming to a correct conclusion. And so, for, once again, to give, <laughs> to give uh, not to make this too political, but to give another political example, it's that uh, how the Chinese Communist Party nowadays tries to sort of, I guess, 
uh, how it engages in, in historical revisionisms, and that's how they retroactively proclaim that Chinggis Khan uh, was uh, was one of the Chinese emperors, and that all those nomadic cultures that managed to conquer the various Chinese states and then had uh, had established dynasties in there for a time. Uh, the idea is that they assimilated, uh, that the ruling class was assimilated so hard that they can basically be considered Chinese. And so Chinese history must be Chinese. And anything that does not fit in that uh, very narrow definition of what Chinese is, is either discarded or rewritten. Uh, retroactively and that is a very dangerous thing it's a dangerous thing on all levels of um, human interaction from in, from uh, international communications uh, from interpersonal relationships to geopolitics uh, for example russia uh, recently uh, had a constitutional reform that proclaimed ethnic russians ethnic white russians to be the state forming ethnicity of russia as opposed to well, one of the uh, one of the ethnicities that live on the territory of Russia. So that puts an, an an important emphasis on the ethnicity as opposed to all the other minorities and native peoples that populate the region. So uh, that's another example. And uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, so I guess. Uh, I guess I'm just trying to emphasize the dangers of uh, stereotyping and the dangers mm -hmm. of uh, you know, possessing a sort of a, this myopic view of the world. For sure. And, you know, anyone who lives in America can tell you our description of American wrestlers. That's not a dis good description for American people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, if you want to talk about built different wrestlers, uh, wrestlers in America are very, very, very different and pretty much all other people, even other athletes. Uh, every, every athlete thinks their guys are tough, um, but almost every time that they're actually compared face-to-face uh, -face with, with what happens in wrestling practices and wrestling rooms and competitions, uh, it's usually not close. It's usually not even close to the same levels of depravity uh, when it comes to the training, But which is what brings me to an interesting point about a couple of examples I was thinking of, uh, You know, taking us back a few minutes when we talk about uh, <laughs> we talk about uh, Habib uh, being privileged or, you know, motivation, things like that. Um, I thought of a couple of people that, that have gone, you know, they, they have different problems, but there's a, a similar theme about what their problems are. Um, and, you know, motivation is one of the main you know, narratives for one of them. So uh, one privileged athlete from, from a previous generation, I uh, would be BJ Penn. Someone who's very successful BJ Penn. Uh, famously has a rich family. Uh, he came from, from privilege in, in Hawaii. And he uh, usually, you know, the, the first thing people think is when you, when you come from wealth is like, oh, what's your motivation to do anything? Like you're going to succeed no matter what in, in the sense that you're going to be financially viable. And usually we talk about money as success. Um, but, you know, he got involved in sports and he was very good. And, uh, you know, people talk about it as a phenom, a prodigy, a talent. Um, and throughout his career, it seemed like the entire discussion about whether he's going to be good or not in a fight is how motivated is he, how much does he care, how hard is he training? And that seemed to be accurate is that a lot of the time he didn't train hard and that's what affected his performances, but sometimes you could get away with it. A more recent example of someone that I feel like comes from a privileged background, but is a very different type of athlete is uh, someone I talked about earlier, Aaron Pico. 
uh, Aaron Pico's uh, lineage can actually be traced to the first governor of Mexico. Uh, like he has a very uh, storied history with, with his family, um, and and they're very well off. It was it was well documented that uh, you know his, his family is very wealthy, and part of his advantage, I would say, as a youth wrestler, because he was prolific from a very young age, uh, was because his father could afford to fly him all over the world to train with the best coaches in the world in boxing and wrestling uh, and whatever he wanted to do, horseback riding, uh, whatever he wanted to do, he had access to the best resources, but he also, for whatever reason, had a chip on his shoulder and is super driven to work extremely hard. And yeah, he's one of the hardest workers in, in the room at all times as well. He's someone that uh, is just a maniac in the training room and, and clearly uh, pushed himself to his limits to achieve his goals. And had all the resources ahead of him and, and, you know, went full steam ahead, but there's a similar theme between the two of them is that they're uh, stubbornly committed to their own ideas because uh, for both of them, I feel like it wasn't success to achieve a different level of status. Uh, in which case, if that's really your goal, you're willing to make sacrifices in, in certain things like uh, the way that you're going to do it. Uh, not, you know, not having to have it your way all the time, you know, being able to listen to other people and take advice and change things. Uh, but the whole motivation the whole time is to like prove yourself and do your own thing and establish yourself and make it about you. Um, that might be where, where that stubbornness comes from to change your style. So for Aaron Pico, um, he got really good at, in this in this one way. And when it came time to make adjustments, uh, he didn't want to do it. And, and I have some insight into that camp team body shop out in Southern California. I talked to a lot of people from that gym and the way that Aaron Pico fought the majority of his MMA career is not what he was taught in that gym. Nobody in that gym is supposed to do that. And Antonio McKee is the opposite of that. Um, like, like Zach said, you need to preserve yourself whenever possible. Like do not take unnecessary damage. Do not brawl. Do not hang out in the pocket longer than you need to. Um, if you get hurt in training, sit down, take a break. You don't need to push through that. Things like that, like smart, reasonable things. But Aaron Pico are, always had his own ideas of what he wanted to do. And he didn't even change camps until way later when it was, you know, kind of late in the game after you know several failures because Joe Rogan told him to go to Greg Jackson's gym. And that's why he went. Um, that's literally the reason um, it's been documented. So those are two very different examples, but they still suffer from the same issues. So if you don't want to talk about toughness, uh, BJ Penn took a hell of a beating, uh, could always take punishment. And people, no one, no MMA fan you ask would say that BJ Penn isn't tough. But in the context of everything that we've talked about, I would question it uh, compared to other athletes because I would say not having the motivation, you know, internally to train when you don't want to and have to do the things you need to do to, to be the best you can and not take those beatings that requires a different type of toughness. And it's, if it's something you can't do and you can't overcome that, then yeah, I think that's a failure in toughness in some sense. Aaron Pico uh, not being humble enough, you know, to, uh, you know, put his own ego aside and, and do the things that other people tell him and, and make changes and, and, you know, do things a different way. I would say that's also a failure in toughness too. And I wonder how connected that is to their background and, and privilege and their psychology and how that's all affected. And uh, like, like Hack said, it's really hard to tie that to geography because you can make, you know, larger demographic statements based on geography and where people live in class and things like that. But at the end of the day, there's certain types of people in every country. You know, you can find an Aaron Pico anywhere. You can find a BJ Penn anywhere. You can find people that are the opposite anywhere. But, uh, you know, it's still good to know what are the systems, what 
what are these types of people being inserted into and how does it differ uh, per place? And I just wish that we had an expert from every major combat sports country here to tell us exactly what it's like, because I want to know uh, so bad. <laughs> Yeah, that just emphasizes the uh, importance of uh, picking the right values, uh, picking the right values to, to hold in, in certain reverence, I guess, to be careful with what you consider to be good and what you, you should strive towards. Because uh, to, to give another, I guess, quasi-historical, quasi-political example, like, for example, modern Mongolia, piggybacks a lot of uh, the legacy of the Mongol Empire and how, what sort of relevance does it have to the modern world? <laughs> We're not going <laughs> to ride around conquering city-states anytime soon. <laughs> We're just simply not in the political and uh, economical positions to do that. And that kind of can be, I guess, I guess it's a tortured way to tie that to, I think, uh, the question I brought up earlier about training culture and uh, training in and culture of training in uh, in MMA camps. So, like, what what sort of values do we want to pick and choose in order to build the ideal MMA camp? Uh, so, so, I guess we can discuss that. Uh, oh no, Hex is dead. I mean, this, this kind of all goes back and I, I suppose, you know, this can get us moving towards the next couple of topics to institutions because, you know, the, Ed will probably shed a tear when I say this, but, you know, people like Dan Gable die, right? Like they get old and they die. What? <laughs> and the question is, if you have, insights from collective knowledge or you have ideas from exceptional people or you even just have um lessons that are taught in a key moment of history like hmm, if we shoot arrows at them and run backwards they chase us into a trap how do you pass on these kind of insights to the next generation how do you make sure that it um, outlasts you or even in some theoretical luxury space gay communism reality where we all live forever <laughs> how do you store knowledge and teach it to new people so that you can have a progression of knowledge and learning across people and the answer to that for the most part is institutions you know if you happen to be of shall we say extreme political ideologies and you might not like democracy you can walk down the street and you can, you know, you can kill a prominent democratic speaker or politician, but it's a lot harder to destroy a democratic country or a democratic tradition or a democratic journal. Institutions are durable. They can outlast people. So if we're going to talk about ideas, concepts in any, you know, realm or sphere, social, cultural, political, economic, whatever, you need to start thinking about institutions because they are they shape you know the big picture and i suppose that kind of points the direction for us to go to next uh yeah uh, so the idea of an institution of mma like currently if you look at the mma today and the scape of uh, how the gyms are uh, function or how the gyms are how the various teams are scattered across for example america it can kind of be considered that mma is uh, still essentially in its uh, wild west type of stage isn't it 
in that every team has its own approach. Every team has its own, I don't know, personality, a head coach that thinks, um, thinks that things should be done a particular way uh, or uh, gyms that hold uh, a particular value system as opposed to the other gyms. Uh, like uh, gyms where a special emphasis, to, emphasis is put on strength and conditioning. Gyms where a special emphasis is put on technique, etc., etc. And so uh, uh, this uh, really, it can be contrasted. Uh, th- there's an interesting contrast between, uh, let's say, how an MMA, typical MMA gym functions in as much as there is such a thing as a typical MMA gym versus how a boxing camp functions. For example, in, uh, in MMA currently, the most common way to think about a fight gym the most common way the, uh, uh, an MMA gym is structured is to have a team where many many different fighters train together collectively whereas in boxing the typical model is that there is a single fighter around whom well if it's a particularly successful fighter of course there are exceptions such as the Kronk gym for example like uh, who's and that produced many fight, many great fighters, such as, for example, Tommy Hearns, the most prominent example. But, but my point is, if you are successful enough, usually in boxing, usually you can afford uh, a gym that is centered around you with different, uh, with a strength, a strength and conditioning coach, uh, a sports psychologist, uh, an admin person, a logistician, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, it's um, interesting to contrast that with how MMA gyms run. And there is an exception in MMA as well in the face of um, Tony Ferguson, naturally. Tony Ferguson always is, is the exception. Is the exception everywhere. So uh, one interesting thing that happened the other day is that uh, Tony gave an interview where, where he explained the various problems he had to face in the build-up to the Charles Oliveira fight. Uh, well, naturally, many many people reacted. Many MMA fans reacted, but oh, that's just an excuse. That's a poor, ex- piss poor excuse for your poor performance in the fight. But Tony pointed out how uh, he only managed to train about five hours of jiu-jitsu for that fight, and that's basically it. Like he was ex- exceedingly busy, even by his usual standards, because he was trying to juggle his personal business stuff and trying to make sure that everyone on his team got paid and uh, there were certain administrative problems where the UFC couldn't like uh, settle on a schedule and settle on a date when he should fight and so that threw all his preparation process out of whack and so people were chuckling at this and uh, I get it in a sense I mean from a certain point of view but this one really made me think like just how many fighters' preparation process is basically a mess purely because of all the things they need to juggle in their lives to stay afloat. Like, I mean, once again, Tony's camp is like more like a boxer's camp where everything is centered around him, and he's got his own personal gym. And how much, and if you think about how much that, uh, how much it costs to keep it all up, and who has he really got there looking out for him, making, making sure he stays on track. I mean, think about this for a moment. You've got your own gym, your own team. You've got everything you need that should, in theory, be optimized towards making you the best fighter you could possibly be. But in practice, you can't afford 
if you can't afford an admin person, then you can't really reap all the benefits of uh, to the fullest extent, because now you also have to organize all that stuff, counting expenses, admin work, logistics, who is av- available when, making sure everyone gets paid on time. It's almost a second full-time job. So like, ideally, fighters should have financial advisors and administrators, but usually in MMA, they just have their manager who more often than not looks over and deals with a whole bunch of other fighters and the coach, and that's it. And so uh, naturally, MMA gravitated towards this model of uh, having a bit, one big gym, uh, one where or like a small gym, depend, depending on the depending on the situation, where multiple different fighters train together and learn from each other. And there's a there's a multiple coaches uh, who work with uh, different fighters at the same time, or or a single coach who works with different fighters at the same time. So I think Zach would be best equipped to talk talk about this particular situation, uh, about a situation where there's a head coach and a, a a gym with many many different fighters training together. So go ahead, Zach. Yeah. So there's a lot. There's a lot in here. Um, yeah. So like certainly, as far as what is preferable, you know, I think once you're at an elite level, it's probably preferable for most people. I don't think everyone's the same. There's no one coach that's the best for everyone. There's no one style of training and preparation that's the best for everyone. It's highly dependent on who you are and what you need. But I think the more specific, once you're at a high level, the more specific and uh, like, your exact specifications for the fight uh, centered camp would be, would be better. The problem is how many people can actually afford to do that in MMA? I think it's very low, very low. And um, when you start MMA, you start training with the team. Like you're, you're you're obviously not going to start like hire a coach and like several coaches for different disciplines and a financial advisor. I, I don't think I know any MMA fighters that have a financial advisor. Maybe George. George might be the only one. <laughs> uh, yeah, so like you, you, you come up in this team atmosphere and the team has value. There is value to having a lot of people there. There's a lot of different ideas. There's a lot of styles. There's a lot of body types. Um, everyone's collaborating. It's like, a, it's like a unique kind of, like we're all in this together kind of feel. So, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think obviously you're going to have to start at like a normal gym, even if it's a famous gym, you're going to have to start in normal classes and that's how you learn fighting. So as you get further and further, like if you're, if you're successful, it doesn't make a lot of sense to change it. But if you, if you can, I think it does make sense. Um, I mean, the law of diminishing returns has to come into play here, has to be considered here, because after a while, uh, every fighter kind of reaches their ceiling. And so uh, it's things like specific game plans towards a specific opponent starts mattering more as opposed to having like learning different techniques. And uh, so you already have your skill set. Now it's uh, the, now it's a question of implementing it properly as opposed to learning new stuff constantly, because it just after a certain point it just st- stops making sense. Really, like why would you need to learn uh, like how to heel hook someone from bottom when your entire game is uh, geared towards getting to the headlock and then choking them out in the in the in the real actual live fight situation? 
So I think that has to be considered as well. But also, yeah. Uh, I think also, more. It, I think yeah. more and more people are like like uh, the champions in divisions. I think more and more of them are slowly gravitating towards uh, smaller specialized camps for them. The problem is it's 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 a very small number of people who can actually afford to make that happen. And even that coaches would want to put in that much time with, with one individual. So like if you're a gym owner, this, this is what, this is what I think. So like, if you're, if you start becoming a successful coach, you have a very successful fighter um, and people become other fighters are fans of that fighter. People are going to gravitate to come train with you. Now, do you want to take an approach that is like, listen, I want to keep it small and focus on a small number of people and, and, uh, you know, guide them as best as possible and put all my effort into them. Like people are coming from all over the world to train with you. So should you say, no, you can't train with me. It's, it's a weird dynamic. And it's probably also a bad business decision to say no. So it, it, uh, the people who say, no, I want to stick with a small number of people, I think are, are very few. And I, I'm, I totally respect the people that are like people now want to come around the, from around the world to train with me. I, I feel like I almost owe it to them to, to, to help them as much as I can. If they're coming and they're going to spend money at my gym and pay to be here, like I owe it to them to try to, to try to uh, give back. Um, uh, yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. And uh, to, to add a cave, a small caveat, a small asterisk to my previous statement about uh, learning new techniques, uh, not making sense for specific fights. I don't mean that you shouldn't. <laughs> and I mean, if you're a professional fighter, obviously you should be, naturally, most people are interested in martial arts. And so learning new stuff is fun. And it's always good for, for the fighters. Maybe learning a new technique may make you stumble upon a new idea on how to approach fighting. Maybe a change would be warranted at a certain level. But anyway, that's uh, individual individual case-by-case uh, -case basis stuff but um this individual fighter versus the team thing uh me and hex kind of discussed it uh, briefly on uh, the latest Tangridom, like uh, but it was more in the context of cultivating class consciousness and laying the groundwork for collective bargaining uh, but basically improving the economic situation of fighters uh in mma but this time i think uh, it makes sense to emphasize this idea of individual fighter versus the team uh, in the context of um, training and coaching for MMA and cultivating uh, like a system of values for MMA. Where, for example, Dustin Poirier would be a great example, and I think Hax brought it up on the, that episode. In that, uh, if, for example, you have Conor McGregor who trained uh, for for most of his career at a, small, at a fairly small gym, not a very like a fairly remote gym in Ireland and sticked with it. And uh, he kind of slowly overtook the entire gym and started to be, and be, basically became centered around him in a sense versus uh, Dustin Poirier, who always trained at, uh, who trained for most of his career at, uh, at American top team. And if you listen to their interviews, uh, there's a very distinct emphasis on team effort and Dustin Poirier's uh, interviews. Like he always talks about how this fight was, uh, his success in this fight was made possible due to the efforts of his team, his coaches, like uh, the, all the fighters he trained with at the uh, to American top team and how, how they all worked together to make 
this success uh, in uh, in his career possible. And it's a very interesting contrast. And uh, I think Hacks uh, uh, may follow up on that. Yeah, just like, I think a really interesting observation to kind of frame this discussion, um, it, particularly with respect to the resources of individual athletes and, you know, the, the conditions under which they um, conduct their training. Am I the only one that feels like the UFC Performance Institute is used as both an olive branch and a stick to handle certain fighters that they think they like to have control under? Like one thing that was particularly interesting for me was when Ngannou was starting to become a real force, right? Like a real UFC media darling. All of a sudden, oh, it's all about Ngannou training at the UFC Performance Institute. It's all about him having a really big punch. Look at how well he's going along with all these wonderful, expensive, top-of-the-range services that we can provide him. And then once Ngannou lost to Miocic the first time, oh, suddenly we're not talking about that anymore. Suddenly Ngannou is, is changing his camp. He's, he's fundamentally changing the way he's doing things. I think it's an interesting point to note that the UFC is very clearly aware to some degree of, if you like, fighter weakness when it comes to the diversity of options available to train. And the fact that it is something that the UFC, I think, offers to fighters who look like um shall we say uh company darlings in the making um and then turn on them the second they are seen as no longer useful to the company so again the Engano example after he lost to lewis and it looked like he wouldn't be the big smashy knockout boy the ufc wanted yeah no i i just thought that observation was interesting to add um there are clear constraints on fighters and how they train and how they approach things. The UFC is very aware of that. And I don't think it's any accident that the UFC uses things like the UFC Performance Institute in the way they do, both as a carrot and a stick. I mean, that's just the contrast between... Uh, it's, it's, I think it's kind of indicative of uh, the way the situation the UFC currently finds itself in. Like it's uh, it always seems like MMA as a sport and UFC as an organization is just about on the cusp of going completely global, overtaking the uh, the entire MMA market. And uh, MMA is just about to break into the mainstream, uh, to, to be and becoming a mainstream staple. Uh, but it feels like many of the things that the UFC implements to maintain control of the market share also is implemented as a way of controlling the way the pace at which the sport grows in uh, in the context of uh, mass modern era of mass communication and globalization and uh, like for example i think i brought it up uh, once uh, on uh, tengridom it's that um, uh, there's a cap uh, on uh, the amount of fighters from the Caucasus region or from Russia in general that the UFC has in order to prevent this ostensibly American organization from being from being overrun with all this uh, Russian talent that's just uh, that seems like it's just dime a dozen over here <laughs> with organizations like M1 and the ACA and all other uh, all sorts of organizations and uh, 
Yeah, and the the UFC Performance Institute being a sort of a carrot in the stick is also a, a bit of a sign of that. And like this uh, the story with Ngano and how Dana White handled his publicity and how the UFC marketing team uh, handled his story is also indicative of that. Like they they've done all that to try and prop him up as this immense like a monstrous figure and the moment he failed them they just actively went after him and Dana White specifically went just on every press conference after Lewis and Gunn he just went after him and it's uh, indicate it's also uh, you can also observe that in all the other uh, uh, situations where fighters didn't really perform the way the UFC expected them to perform or the way that Dana White constantly talks about how fighter X doesn't want to fight uh, John Jones doesn't want to fight. George St. Pierre doesn't want to fight. Dustin Poirier doesn't want to fight. And I mean, it's a it's a bizarre statement to make. They're a professional fighter, of course they, of course they want to fight. It's the it's the bread and butter. That's how they make their the money, their money. That's the, how they make their living. It's their whole life. And yet, despite this, there is always this narrative that uh, a fighter wusses out. A fighter is a pussy. He's not tough. His, uh, he doesn't have the guts to step in and fight for for the title. And oftentimes, uh, this is this happens when a fighter asks to get paid according to their station. Uh, so there's uh, there, be- there becomes this. I think it, it's a bit of a uh, damage control type thing, almost uh, almost like a preventative slap across the face to just kind of uh, remind the fighter of his place in the organization it's uh, one more measure of control they try to employ but that's getting into this whole corporate corporate dealing sort of deal this whole idea of institutions once again <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah uh like uh the thing i wanted to get into like i think we touched upon enough on the nature of uh, camps in mma i think the, the, we examined it uh, coherently enough and succinctly enough to come to a conclusion that there needs to be maybe there needs to be a certain push for centralization or for uh, creation of a, like a, uh, an accepted standard of coaching because when you think about it like uh, you, you've talked to uh, Jared Mark uh, uh, I'm blanking on his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned that at Jackson Wink, uh, that his experiences uh, training in Jackson Wink, there were certain things that were he felt were lacking in in instruction, mm-hmm. and I, and I don't think that it's uh, a particularly rare occurrence in MMA gyms today, because you frequently see fighters with like bizarre gaps in their skill sets, because we've uh, we've mentioned before that. As a professional fighter, many people are interested in learning more, learning more martial art, learning more about martial arts, increasing their skill set. And because, because if you know more, if you are a better as a fighter, it increases your chances of winning. And so, why is there this this situation where sometimes gyms don't just just plain don't teach fighters the things that they need to know in order to win their fights? And it kind of it, I think it stems from a bit of a lack of st- standardization of coaching, like a lack of mm-hmm. a certain standard of coaching. 
And so uh, what do you think uh, needs to be done to address that? Like, I mean, do we have any more examples of fighters who were hurt by this situation, by this uh, Wild West type situation in MMA? Most of them. So just speaking, speaking for myself, but I mean, my experience getting into MMA and, and combat sports in general, there were dozens upon dozens upon dozens of other people having the same experience as me simultaneously in the same rooms that I was in going through the same stuff all around the country, all around the world. Um, basically when, when you start, if you're, if you're, unless you're lucky, you're probably not getting super high level instruction right in the beginning. You're probably learning a couple of things and getting to play around with stuff. And you, you, you get a lot of time to start to try to figure things out on your own which is bad, honestly. Um, in, in some ways, it's nice to kind of, you know, uh, the heavy hands guys talk a lot about how style and personality are linked and that fighters fight a way that's influenced by their personality. And definitely 100%, but that might not be a good thing. Uh, like, so for me, like, I felt like I was self-taught for so long. Even when I started to get into gyms, it was more like, okay, do the thing, do this thing. Now we're going to spar. I'm going to look at what you do and I'm going to try to tweak what you do and, and make it a little better. Um, but I've never had a coach try, try to change every, like my entire approach. And sometimes I think that's probably necessary. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I think there's uh, a, a way around that, but I've heard different coaches speak uh, from major camps, from smaller camps that like personally. Um, and there seems to be a general consensus that that's the way they want to do it. They want to take what you do, and make adjustments to, to make you better at that, which I think is a fine approach in a situation where the competencies are being met in every area and that the person had a sound idea for how they created their style in the first place. But realistically, it's kind of random and chaotic. Um, most of the time, it's not super developed and, until later on, and you already kind of have a lot of habits and ways that you do things. So even like a camp like uh, Alliance, in San Diego, I've heard Eric Del Fierro speak before. That that's a, that's a camp where the fighters, a lot of them, have creative approaches, um, but also weird deficiencies. And that's one where he said he likes to let people do the things that they want to do and just try to make them a little bit better at it. Um, and you know, it, sometimes it's accidental. Which camps actually end up taking off? It's really circumstantial that maybe they get one guy that comes through that's really talented and already has a pretty good idea of it, and they make them a little bit better, and they get there their name attached to him and other people come in and kind of grows from there. I think that that's a situation that comes up pretty uh, frequently. And maybe that's something that leads into Zach's whole thing about camp loyalty. That made me think of that for sure. Uh, I'm, I'm going to touch quick on the PI and then I'll come back to this. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't exactly see the PI as a carrot and stick. It's certainly a carrot. Um, but I've, it's certainly been a good thing for the fighters. They get, and I'm not here to defend the UFC, by the way. But they they get being uh, paid by the PI. He's a PI shill. <laughs> I wish PI yeah, called me. Call me. <laughs> uh, they, they have access to a pretty good facility. There's no coaching there. There's strength and conditioning coaches, so you get free strength and conditioning, access to this pretty amazing facility. You get free meals three times a day if you're on the roster, and you can always bring one other per person in if you're on the roster. Um, and you get like free physical therapy and some medical attention. So I think it is a carrot 
as in as far as in like here we're gonna give you this which is awesome but it's like obviously one more hump you would have to get over to get to like uh where more people would see it necessary to collectively bargain and what have you which i think i'm in favor of and i think we should we should certainly get there um uh as far as like um coaching and how you develop people so i i literally this week is the first week i'm starting to run an mma program in bethlehem at at finishers um and i am trying to give people a lot of so i mean a lot some of these guys have had amateur fights there's no pro fighters here yet some have not had any fights that the guys that are in my classes um i'm trying to give them I'm, I'm trying not to just be like, here's what you're doing. Do it the way I say at all costs. Uh, I'm trying to say, this is what I think. Um, I'm going to show you principles and you can, you can develop those principles how you want. Here's what I like. Here's an example of those principles in action. And I also give them time to take direction over their own training because I'm an, I'm one coach running a class of people. So like, it's going to be a general class that, and I think most of the fighters, even pro fighters, even up to a high level, even UFC fighters come in and they don't know what they're doing for training that day. They have no idea. They just show up and do whatever coach says and get their live rounds in and go home. And they, there's like, there's no, or very little conscious effort over how they're directing their training. And they're so in the daily day to day of it that it's like, you know, they're working on little things. And, you know, the coaches te- teach in, you know, some principles from guard and like how we can use leg locks to uh, get people to retreat so we can get to our feet, for example. And we cover this. So like we're, we're working like all these principles and like the details over these for like several weeks and you get lost in the way it fits into your whole game. You, you, you always lose the big picture. So it's like, it, it's pretty difficult. So I'm trying to give them like, a block of time. If Ross does this too, where I'm like, here's a block of time for you to drill what you want to drill. If you have a question, if you want my advice, here's what I'll think. But like, I want you to have some control and direction over your own training because everybody's going to be different and oh, not everyone should train the same. So that's the approach I'm trying to give right now. And the one I think is the best. Um, but I agree, like up to a certain level, this has to be at like a certain level. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give these guys the idea even at a, at a fairly low level. But I want them to not just show up with no idea of what they want to work on. I want them to have an idea of something to work on every day. Mm-hmm. I think that will, that will uh, quicken their development by a lot. Yeah, I just thinking in, in an ideal world, because you, you said it, like you're, you're teaching a class. Um, and, and, you know, we talked about it last time that even huge, you know, pro gyms, most of the income is like the, the hobbyists, you know, you know, women and kids and people that are hobbyists and like you, you train those same practices a lot of the time. And, you know, there are separate practices for the pros, but a lot of that is just the more intense stuff, uh, maybe more advanced skills. But at what point are you taking a newer person and building them? as someone who's going to compete pretty much never you're pretty much never saying let's figure out 
how do you win? You know, what, what's your way to win? And what do we need to do in the long term? What are all the different things we need to address to make sure that you can pursue this winning style and, and approach a win? Uh, so I feel like you would even need a separate program. Uh, it, it would have to be its own thing from start to finish, like we talked about, like when we start to refer to the Soviet system, long-term development. Uh, like when I started wrestling, I went through an entire season of wrestling with a team that should have been good because we had good coaches and we had facilities and we had everything we needed to be good. Three wrestlers on that team were good. And a bunch of us were first year wrestlers. And by the end of the season, I didn't know how to win a wrestling match. I knew some moves. I was in good shape. I knew stuff, but I had no idea how I was going to manage a match or try to win it. I just went out there and started wrestling and like whatever happened, happened. I had no idea what was going on. I had no larger sense of the thing or what I was going to do the next time or how I was going to get better or anything like that. And the coaches were, you know, they were, they were running practices and teaching technique, but they were focusing on the guys that already were good and had their games and they were just trying to take them to the next level. But what do you do for somebody who's said they show up day one, they know nothing. And they say, I want to be a pro fighter. If you have that kind of situation, I feel like it's so different than what it is. Um, so yeah, the resources and, and the reasoning, the, 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 motivation to create that kind of situation, that atmosphere, it doesn't exist. Um, so it's just like, I, I think this is something that's on, on our, our document that you put in there too. And I was like, what if MMA was an Olympic sport? Uh, what if it was something that was, you know, systematically Incentives. amateurized? Yeah. Incentives. What do we have? What do we have to work with? What do we mm-hmm. want to accomplish? And yeah, that's the topic of, um, of what would what would happen if we have if we get a centralized amateur system for MMA, mm-hmm. for a system where people can, uh, like, they can give their kids to a, I don't know an amateur MMA gym, and then they'll be built, built into MMA fighter, fighters from the from the ground up. Uh, how do we accomplish that? Will that be even a good thing? That's uh, that's actually an enormous, an enormously huge topic. <laughs> I'm starting to realize it now. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. we're already approaching. Like uh, I think uh, we've run for almost two hours now. I vote that we don't unpack that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it can be. Uh, it can be the follow-up episode. Yeah, absolutely. It can be made a follow-up episode, but I think we also need to give hacks his uh, last word. His hand's been up for two topic. hours, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's just, it's a, it, he's been dead for two hours. It's just rigor mortis. I mean, I think to, to kind of use an example, like I think it's probably fair to say that the prof, like university professions and high level grad study is probably a bit more established than mixed martial arts. So I'll just kind of use the experience <laughs> I have like in postgraduate econ and preparing for that despite the fact that it should be organized despite the fact that it should be relevant there's a huge debate as i understand occurring in like teachers i don't know a teaching environment why are we teaching so many young economists or demanding that so many young economists do all of this mathematics because you have to do a lot of pretty technical math if you want to get into a top 20 program in the u.s or like a top 20 program in the world but for, for many young economists, they're never going to use any of this math the second they're finished with it in the PhD program. It's kind of irrelevant in a sense and perhaps even destructive because it's taking up like time that could be spent, you know, learning more relevant skills. And this debate rages on and rages on. And I think it's 
maybe it's a little negative, but maybe it's a, a reminder to the discussion we're having now that like even quite established academic professions that have had, you know, 200 plus years of like, hmm, maybe we should uh, think about the skills we're learning and are they relevant? Are they important? How do they fit into the broader context of, uh, I don't know, ecosystem and, you know, our, our performers or our competitors? We still can't get that mixture right. So while like MMA's uh, youth or lack of maturity is definitely a part of why I think this is such a headache, this problem is never really going to go away. And I suspect as we see different generations of mixed martial arts and different questions and different metas develop, this idea of are the skills we're learning are relevant? Are they being taught in a relevant way? Are they being folded back into a central paradigm that are competitors or our youth are actually using and applying this this is like an eternal problem it's a problem with education itself and maybe that that's my last point it frustrates me that people in mixed martial arts don't want to talk about this like this is an education problem they just want to talk about it as like you know bro science bullshit because if we don't take this topic seriously as a community well people we're are going to get screwed. hurt yeah, people we're are getting hurt right because, now because yeah, of that. far more academically inclined, accountable, better funded systems are struggling with this problem. So if you're not smart about it, you're screwed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to, to, uh, sorry. Yeah, and to emphasize that point, whereas uh, uh, like an academic environment not having uh, solved these problems after two what two hundred years uh, leads to things like maybe uh, leads to things like uh, uh, institutions failing, et cetera, et cetera, and, uh, and political communications failing, and uh, the, the various world problems not being solved because uh, people aren't teaching the right skills. If you narrow it down to MMA and make it an educational problem in MMA, we already can see the direct consequences of poor coaching and poor teaching and poor skill development and that fighters are getting hurt. <laughs> they're getting beat up and uh, they're getting injuries. They're falling out. The fights keep falling out. Uh, fights keep uh, falling through because uh, fighters get injured all the time due to... Sometimes they just get injured because that's just how it is. And sometimes they get injured because the strength and conditioning situation is wrong because... Maybe this the sparring in there is a bit too rough in the in the gym, and uh, uh, it's been a problem with combat sports forever for for ages now. And uh, I mean, I think the oldest professional uh, competition sports sports can be considered. I guess one of the oldest competition sports combat sports is Muay Thai, and uh, they still have these have this problem with it, like. I mean, it's 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 an it's another huge topic to unpack, but uh, I mean, it just shows just how expansive and extensive and deep the problem runs, and how how hard this problem, how hard to solve this problem actually is in practice. But yeah, we I haven't even to, yeah. Just to point out, like the like the fact that Robert Whitaker, you know, realized. Um, 
you know, how, how screwed his strength and training regime was, is a good thing. I've seen people being like, oh, it's a terrible situation. Why are we even talking about it? It's bad. It's like, we should be fucking talking about it. Like, yes, it's bad that he overtrained to the point where he nearly shut himself down, but at least he's fucking recognizing the problem. Step one of solving a problem is recognizing you have it. And at least Robert Whitaker's at that stage. A lot of fighters are not. They're just still working themselves to death. Uh, I, I, like, I think the fighter that comes to mind for me is Chris Weidman. Like, with all the injuries he suffered, why is he still fighting killers and pushing himself to the brink at this stage? It's insane. And he has no self-awareness about it. Yeah. Knowing, knowing is half the battle, as they say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, you know, every problem is layered every problem is influenced by other problems in mma and a lot of these questions can be answered by uh they need the money <laughs> you know they're not financially secure because it's not you know very you know it doesn't it pay kind very of well also, it kind of also ties itself to the idea not to the notion of toughness in mma as well see i circle to the back around <laughs> i was looking for an angle to bring it make it about toughness again if you were the listener like, well, it wasn't this about toughness. Well, in two ways, our current discussion is still about toughness. One, you could say that, you know, it's a natural segue from bad, bad toughness, you know, toxic toughness of, you know, fighters taking beatings and why are they doing it and how does this relate to the institution? But you can also talk about when we talk about toughness or when we do analysis at all, what are we analyzing? We're analyzing behavior, right? And if you've ever, you know, studied psychology in an academic setting, uh, most of the theory does not just look at the person. You look at the environmental factors, you look at the macro level. And that's what we've been doing this time on this podcast. We've been looking at all the influencing factors of the industry and the training and the culture and everything. Culture is okay. also tied to it because culture is a behavioral system. Bam. See, it's still about toughness. It's all about toughness. <laughs> it's always toughness. It's the name of the guy, the, the, the astronaut's. Yeah. You know, oh, it's about toughness. Always has been. We haven't, we, haven't <laughs> dug, we haven't even dug into strength and conditioning much. And I'm here. I, I need like six more strength, guests on that. <laughs> I'm here as a former strength coach to defend, to defend us. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I think it will, would pay. It would pay to make much more to make make more episodes on this topic and kind of retroactively rena- rename it into something more fitting. I think we're stuck in a loop <laughs> of making episodes on this. We're never going to end. <laughs> we kind of we're also making it up as we go along despite the fact that we also have clearly detailed uh, outlined plans <laughs> but i mean no plan survives first contact with the enemy and the enemy usually in this case is hacks because he always brings up something that <laughs> that sends us into a spiraling sends us spiraling into a, this black hole of extremely deep topics that's uh have existed for since since I don't know, since uh, a monkey picked up a rock. <laughs> oh no! Don't make me think about deep topics. I hate that. Hacks. No, don't do that to me. <laughs> it, it's got a, it's got a mind of its own, and its name is Hacks. <laughs> but uh, I mean, yeah, is there anything else that we really wanted to talk about this time? I mean, I think we can uh, start wrapping this up and to just kind of bring this to a conclusion. Uh, to to recap, what did, did we? Uh, go over we started with i don't remember <laughs> <laughs> yeah we need to kind of we need to wrap this up and uh, like give us give it a neat little bow to make yeah. it seem like we're doing to. circles. this is this is artistic 
<laughs> it's kind of a gunshot sound in the, in the distance. <laughs> Ending of the Sopranos. Yeah. Uh, I guess uh, I think we've, we've examined the notion of toughness. We've examined the culture of toughness and uh, what culture even is, or at least trying to give it uh, a definition. I think I'm going to come up with a specific definition for the next episode. <laughs> and that, that's always on me. And uh, we've um, gone over how the way people talk about culture may not necessarily be reflective of reality. Most of it is just stereotyping and not just and not examining these uh, things in depth, like the way Russia versus US, Cuba versus South uh, with versus the rest of South America. Uh, it's uh, more a question of incentive, incentives rather than geography. And uh, then we went into how uh, how that reflects and uh, reflects in the sport of MMA and what sort of influence this stuff has on on MMA itself. And then uh, I don't. Did we have a takeaway from there? Oh, well, we started building from there towards the idea of institution of MMA, how it works as a, well, as an entire whole huge thing that uh, that uh, that is uh, decided decided the outcomes in which this are decided by the interplay of economics and uh, uh, fighter incentives and uh, well. Uh, in a sense, maybe even geopolitics as well. I mean, uh, patriotism and nationalism plays always played a huge role in how uh, who roots for uh, uh, who root, like uh, in deciding the narratives for the fight. I mean, like if you look at how, for example, Kamar Usman is marketed. That's a that's another big example of that, and. Um, yeah, uh, we've started chewing our way through another gigantic topic that is going to take I don't know how many episodes, but uh, I think we've done so far in when it comes to introducing these concepts, I think we've done a good job so far. So I think the next one is going to be examining uh, examining how MMA can develop. And yeah, how, one, and... one thing I'm super interested in is how to make MMA like profitable globally. Because really, like the UFC is the only show that's really making money. As yeah. far as I'm aware, Bellator only made a profit in 2019, first year they ever made a profit. And as far as I know, no other shows are really making money. They're all losing money. So, how, why are they the only ones making money? And how do we make it profitably glo- profitable globally? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of. I have no answers, but I want to hear the answers. It's kind of a question of combating a monopoly. Yeah. So economics also play a role in that, and yeah, it's just it's a mountain, a mountain of problems, and uh, Maybe and, uh, and all we have, uh, and all we have is a spoon. <laughs> I was just going to add, like, on top of that, not just profitability, but also sustainability, because they're not yeah. always the same thing. Yes. Yes. So I guess I guess stay tuned for our next uh, two-hour discussion where I just we we stumble and sputter our way through <laughs> a topic that uh, through a problem that many 
of the best minds in the world uh, still still don't really know how to solve <laughs> just a, <laughs> a bunch of random meatheads except i guess one one person in here who is kind of not a meathead <laughs> talking about this stuff but yeah uh stay tuned for that ed do you want to plug anything yeah, subscribe to the fight site on Patreon. Uh, there's a ton of stuff on there. Uh, most of it right now is uh, common analytical commentary on videos of fights, wrestling matches, boxing matches, uh, Muay Thai, stuff like that. Uh, something recently I've been putting up uh, is my resume review series. That's where I you know watch a few fights uh, of the most important fights for uh, a fighter that's about to compete that weekend and uh, evaluate how impressive the win is. Uh, via number of factors. I did one on Kamara Usman. He's about to fight tomorrow for when we're recording this, which will have already happened when this is released. And, uh, you know, one of the, interestingly enough, when I was doing that, the, the Colby Covington fight actually uh, made me think a lot about toughness. And that was actually a particularly tough performance from my perspective for Covington uh, from a lot more with the topics that we discussed in the first episode with regard to, you know, bravery in a fight of, you know, overcoming limitations and things like that. So, uh, yeah, check that out. There's, there's a lot of content on there, but also beyond that $3 tier, uh, there's the $5 tier, which puts you on our discord server, which is an insane place uh, full of crazy weirdos. Uh, but if you're listening to this, that's you, that's you, you can't deny it. You can't deny that you're insane. If you, li- if you are this part of this podcast, you're crazy and you belong in our discord server. So five bucks a month, imagine all the things you spend money on that are five bucks in a month like you you can definitely afford it like you just don't tell me you're budgeting that precisely um so five dollar tier will get you in our discord server ten dollars and up is for content requests you could request a podcast topic if you're like hey i want you guys to talk about something i'm interested in and not this nonsense uh pay me uh, and we'll do it uh and then a higher tier is like you could request your own analytical video or an article breakdown or we watch fights for you or whatever you know there's so, so much that we can do and let's be honest, there aren't that many other people that can do it like we do it. We're the best, we're the tough guys, and we're also the big brains. And uh, yeah, you, you, you need us. You need us. You might not know that you want us, but you need us. Um, and that's my plug. There you go. <laughs> and I think Zach wanted to examine some of these topics in, the, in his future articles, but that depends entirely on the, uh, when they would be ready. So stay after, tuned for that. After this is released, I'm sure. If you're yeah. lucky enough that I have time to get around to it, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I guess you've listened to the uh, you've listened to the audio equivalent of a bicep growing a brain. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it's a unique situation you found yourself in. Yeah, I guess uh, that's enough. Of, that's enough of that for today. Good night, folks. Been a real, been a real pleasure to talk about this with these fine gentlemen. Yeah. And cheers. I got smarter, or dumber. Who knows? <laughs> I feel like I know less than I knew before. <laughs> <laughs>